a couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk which began with a quote from Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda about choosing a path with heart. Anything is one of a million paths. So you must always keep in mind that a path is only a path. If you feel you should not follow it, you must not stay with it under any conditions. Look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary. And then ask yourself and yourself alone one question. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. And if it doesn't, it's of no use. Now one of the questions that came that evening as we were together that arose afterward was a question about boundaries and about being taken advantage of and about codependence. And I said I would talk about that some, so I will try this evening in some way. It's a question that was very compelling, as I mentioned at the Women in Buddhism conference, the difference between codependence and compassion. It was a real active topic. Also, I had announced previously that on the last Monday of each month from now on, this being the last Monday of September, that we would end the talk in the group a bit earlier and make a place for small discussion groups for those who wish as a way to uh, build the connection of the Sangha. So if I can keep myself from talking too long, we will do that in the right period of time. Codependence and compassion. It really is a question, as in many of spiritual questions, of how one should act. One might call it a question in the realm of ethics. And there are different answers that will come. The mind will figure things out and say certain things. And the heart might have some other answer. And the questions of ethics are not simple ones, nor are they ones that one can necessarily even answer just by thinking, by the mind. To live one's life from a deep place of inner truth requires a kind of questioning and listening that's deep. I remember being with the Dalai Lama at one point and someone was asking him all these ethical questions. Well, if it's, if it's one, is, one shouldn't kill, what about if you have a horse who's broken their leg? Is it okay to shoot that horse? And the Dalai Lama just looked back and he said, suppose that horse were your child, were your son or your daughter, what would you do? It's not so simple that, well, it's got a broken leg, let's just shoot the horse. And he didn't give an answer, he just challenged that person to try to listen in a deeper way. That's the, the teachings for us to discover in ourselves what the Buddha or whoever we admire from the spiritual past discovered. Uh, where do we find that in our own hearts? So codependence, it's a word that comes, it's relatively fashionable or popular now that comes from the, from the work and the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step programs and the people who are really studying and learning about the ways that suffering is created through addiction and dependence. 
See if I can describe it in some simple way, that word for those who aren't familiar. Codependence means being an accomplice, a kind of complicity with someone who is acting in a self-destructive way, being dependent on their behavior or supporting it somehow for your own security. The obvious example from alcoholism is someone who is in a relationship with an alcoholic and takes care of that person. If the person goes out and gets completely drunk and can't go to work the next day, their partner will pick up the phone and call the boss and say, well, he's feeling or she's feeling a little sick today. They'll be in tomorrow. And lie for them or defend them or in some way not allow them to experience the fruits of their actions. There are different kinds of complicity in someone else's destructive behavior. The ways that actively support it, to support their destructive behavior through lies or through protecting someone so that they can just go out and get drunk or do something else destructive again and again without experiencing the fruit of what they do. Or the complicity of silence, of not speaking up, of not saying anything. Anybody got any other good examples of codependence? I know there are many. Please. So a whole other part of it is being so tuned to what someone else is doing that you lose your own center and your own self. Any other examples of codependence that someone can think of? When someone else is feeling pain or some difficulty, rather than allowing them to have that, you try and fix it or take it away or do something because, for whatever reason, um, you're unable to just allow them to have it. Do you have some sense of what codependence is from these few examples? Maybe it'll get clearer as we go along. Yes? So that's another way of saying that all the problems here are this person's problems and there's a kind of system of blame that focuses responsibility outside of oneself on someone else. Now what makes us keep silent or what makes us support destructive behavior in other people or what makes us want to take away somebody's pain? What element operates in us in those situations? Anybody? Please. Um, lack of self-confidence. Self um, so uh, 
So not, not feeling secure in yourself and, and basically not having a good sense of oneself and therefore accepting abuse and not having confidence. Please. So another reason is to try to, to buy love by, by fixing it or supporting someone, even in destructive ways. Please. The person who... The person who names the problem is the person who will have to deal with it. I, I don't understand. So that if I say you're an alcoholic... So, so if you don't name it, right? So, so you just pretend it's not there. You decorate it. I see. So we don't speak because if we say anything, all of a sudden we're going to have to do something about it. It will all fall on us because we're the one to say the rhinoceros is in the room. So it's fear. It's lack of one sense of sense of of integrity of oneself. It's uh, wanting love at any cost. Another example, or a need to control. Lack of trust. So wanting our security so much that we that we try to control any way we can. One more. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's real uncomfortable. Right. Please last. So that it touches something in us that's so uncomfortable that we want to take it away in that other person because we really can't live with it in ourselves. All right, it seems like people could go on for a while. You've obviously studied or experienced this some. Now, I'm, I'm not the last word in all this, so I'm going to say what things, uh, I think, raise some useful questions for you. And when we have discussion groups afterward or in your own way, you can reflect and see if this is even accurate. You have to look in yourself. Now, there's the kind of complicity when one lives with a drug addict or an alcoholic or, or those kind of very strong, uh, powerful situations of codependence. But in some other way, I sense that we are all, there's a deeper level that we are all uh, accomplices in the crimes of our society in some way. Do you know what I'm speaking about? There's a quote from Bertolt Brecht in the early part of the century where he said, what times are these when a conversation about trees is almost a crime because it includes so much silence about so many outrages. Now, since his time, trees have been included in the outrages. It's true. Who would have thought that in the 1920s? But many of us, in some way, not just in our personal relationships, but in the way we live, perhaps all of us, are accomplices in the rape of the earth, in the ecological destruction by how we drive or or what we use of material things, and we don't like to look at it or think about it. Or we're accomplices to a society that still has a lot of racism 
where blacks or Asians or Chicanos or, or other people in our society are not really respected as human beings. Maybe we don't do it ourselves, but we, we don't look at it. We don't listen to it. We turn the other way. Or accomplices in some way around drugs or other kinds of injustice or greed that are rampant in our times. What do we seek in our spiritual life if we are to live a life from the heart or a spiritual practice? What do each of us seek to bring to the world? Is it our goal, if we could, to fix it? To make sure there's enough medicine and enough books and enough education and enough art and enough oil and all these things? You know, do we want to make it that way or to make our mark, to contribute something? Would we like to create a world in our ideal where there's no suffering, no aging, no birth, no death, no pain, no greed? Is that our aim in some way? Or might we have some other basis for our, our contribution to the world? We could also seek to love the world rather than to try to fix it. I mean, we could even be in a codependent relationship with the, the ills of the society. So we have to start looking in ourselves. What is it to do good? What does it mean to do good? Mother Teresa often teaches in the work in Calcutta, in the, in the hospice, in the death and dying center, she said, it's, we're not social workers. Our work isn't to take these people off the streets and clothe them and feed them. The government could do that. Our work is to bring to the people that we touch the spirit and the love of God that has touched us. And the rest of it is just the vehicle to communicate that spirit. It's a very different way of approaching solving a problem. What do we seek in all of our activity, really? This is, a, this is from Henry David Thoreau. Many people go fishing all their lives without knowing that it is not fish that they're after. <laughs> Wonderful, isn't it? So what is it that we want, and how can we sort that out as we act in our families, in our community, in the world. See if we can get it to be a little more practical. In the traditional Buddhist practices, there are two practices that are taught in balance, one for, one, one for the other. There is a series of practices of the loving and compassionate heart, metta meditation and karuna meditation, where you do an inner exercise of opening to wishing love for yourself and other beings and developing a compassion that allows yourself to feel another's pain as your own, to let your heart be open enough that it flutters, that it quivers when there is the sorrow seen in another being. It's really the, the work of opening and of listening and of feeling that deep interconnectedness. And they're very powerful 
wonderful meditations. We've done them here some nights, we'll do them again. These practices, however, are balanced by an equanimity practice. You do that and you get your heart as open as you can and you do infinite compassion for all the sorrow of the world and the suffering and you feel that. And then the next practice you do is called the equanimity practice. And the teachings of the equanimity practice are to see life as a dance and to understand its seasons of birth and death, of spring and summer and autumn and winter, and to feel those rhythms and sense that every being lives according to those rhythms, that it's not a bad thing or a problem that people are born and age and die, but that it's natural. To see that we are all heirs to our own karma, that we have created our own lives. And we can love, we can even assist others, but in the end, no one can create a life for someone else. No one can change another person's fate. We are the ones that create what will happen for us. No one can let go for you. You say, will someone please help enlighten me? What enlightenment is about is letting go. All right, let go of that. Please, somebody help me do that. I suppose you could come over and peel my fingers off of it, but it, it won't help me much in the long run. Each person has to learn in the, in the deepest way, in their heart and their cells, what it means to let go. And nobody can do that for another person. You can inspire them, you can love them. So the equanimity practice is seeing that this earth has seasons and that beings are born and go through all kinds of dances and dramas and that our work isn't so much to fix them all, but to love them. So let me raise some questions then about codependence and compassion for us to consider. Does our compassion in our lives also include wisdom? Does it include the wisdom of the seasons? Does it include truth as well as just caring? Does it include justice? To do that means that we have to honor the importance of disharmony and the value of suffering. It means to not be so afraid of pain or death. We need a certain amount of suffering for growth. Pruning, I think it's called in some sutras. Just like forest fires, if they don't happen periodically, then it waits a long time and then there's a huge, terrible forest fire. They have their place. And there are certain seeds, as you know, that only sprout after the forest fire. In some ways, well, I've been working with a number of people with AIDS in these past years, as probably a lot of you have, because the epidemic has touched so many lives. And there are a number of men, particularly, who have told me that they learned more from their AIDS than anything else in their life. Terrible though it was, it's been their greatest and deepest teacher. And sometimes our worst loss, the most painful thing that happens to us, is our deepest grace. Because that's the place that we finally learn love or surrender or trust or understanding or compassion.
Are we afraid of that in ourselves or others? Of death, of suffering, of pain? Because to the extent that we are and have not faced it and accepted it, it's very hard to be open to what someone else needs to learn. Or can we stand on it, as I said the other night? Can we stand on our death, on our mortality, on our suffering, and open to the, the whole of life's dance? Another question about compassion, beside does it include wisdom and, and justice? Does our compassion include respect for ourselves? This was like the comment in the back. People ask about boundaries and being taken advantage of and our habits and from painful past situations we get taught somehow out of security needs to make sure that everything's okay with everybody else first. But is there not also a place very centrally for compassion for ourselves, for this body and this heart and this person? To see ourselves as if somehow there were present with us the goddess, the bodhisattva of mercy, who wasn't just caring for your spouse or your children or your neighbor or the community or the earth, but had that same loving, merciful heart for each of us as well. Can we include ourselves in compassion? With that, we're also then required to learn the ability to say no. Maybe next week I'm going to talk about yes and no a little bit in practice. In fact, let me ask you, can you separate, honestly, can you separate caring for yourself from caring for someone else when you really listen in your spiritual life? Are they separate? So we have to find a way to live our own truth, not Gandhi's or who is it, Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic Worker Movement, or all these wonderful people you might have read or heard about. That's all fine for them. You know, that's their truth, their way. But can we touch that universal in ourself, in our own way? Another question. Is our compassion and the work that comes out of it, our service, is it truthful in regards to our own capacities, our own tiny capacities, or our great capacities? My teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, don't try to be a spiritual weightlifter, you know, and lift, <laughs> lift weights that are too big for you. You'll just hurt yourself. Which is to say, don't be idealistic. We are each given certain endowments of our body and our heart and our spirit, and they're limited. Please understand that. I mean, in some universal way, they're not limited, but to take incarnation is to, to do the dance of understanding limit as well as the limitless. And sometimes the well runs dry. Sometimes the store runs out of goods. I'm sorry, there's no more for sale today. And sometimes we need to take shelter and silence and say no and just listen and care in that way. 
Can we respect those cycles of inner and outer and of our capacity with the same mercy that we would care for another? I remember visiting a good friend, uh, Roshi Bill Kwong, who has the Zen Center in Sonoma Mountain, some years ago, and he got cancer. He had cancer at one point. And then sometime after that, he kicked everybody out of the community, or almost everybody out, and kind of let it start over again. And I visited him after that time. He said, oh, it was such a hard thing. These were old students, and we were all good friends. But there wasn't really much good practice happening here. It was just that we'd all gotten to be good friends together. And he said, and I, you know, I thought, well, I should just work with this. And I really wanted them to stay, and I, I should have been able to do it in my practice. But my body wouldn't let me anymore and I had to kick them all out. And it was so honest. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just to respect that part of our life as well, to take our body into our heart, and to take our limitations, just as you would with a child. So is our compassion truthful in regards to ourselves and loving? One more question. Can our work, our love, our compassion, whatever kind of work we do, can it come out of emptiness? Can it be born out of emptiness? Emptiness of self, emptiness of all things. Let me see if I can explain this in some way that touches you or makes some sense. We think we own things. We create them. We possess them. Our children, our family, our work, our community, our, even our bodies. It's mine. As if that were really true. We don't possess them. Try to possess your children. The more you possess them, what happens? The more you suffer, basically, and they suffer as well. So we act as if we possess things rather than that we live in this dance that can honor them. We act then by being the owners, my body, my child, my parent, my whatever it is. We act as if then that we know. We know what's right for somebody else. And it's reinforced all the time, especially in certain roles. It certainly gets reinforced as a parent. You're the one who knows and the kid doesn't. Or as a teacher, and it's really a great danger in this role, I'll tell you, to think that, start saying all these things and kind of nodding as you go along, yeah, I must really know something. And then you believe it, and it's, it's awful. In the long run, it's awful, because for anything useful to happen up here, it has to be what's true and not what I know. And that's very hard. I remember being with my teacher, Ajahn Chah, in the forest. One of the last times I saw him, he was getting old and kind of a little doddery with his cane, and it was before he had a stroke and couldn't teach anymore. And we were in his monastery, and a group of people came from a nearby province, uh, a family of people, and they brought this woman who had cancer. She had kind of moderately advanced cancer. Um, and her children came with her, and her husband and grandparents, his family, and they asked for him to do a blessing ceremony, which he did. He did this holy water thing, and he taught her a healing meditation. And then she left, the family left, 
and he poked me. I was sitting there with him. He said, you think I did anything to help her? I said, I don't know. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if she dies, it will be suffering and sorrow and they will bury her and have a funeral and that will be the end of it. And if she doesn't and she gets better, they'll all say, ah, the great teacher did it. That's who did it. He said, is that really what you think happens? And he poked me again just to make sure I got the point. You know? <laughs> so it gets reinforced that somehow we're the ones that do it. We're the ones that know. Of course, wisdom asks in our situation as we live, is this action just? Is it true? Is it helpful to all, to oneself and others? That's the, a question that must be asked. Is there justice in this? Is there mercy for everyone? But in the end, we don't know, actually. We just don't know. And we can't know. We don't know what mistakes are necessary, what mistakes are valuable. What is the lesson for this person? What did they take birth to learn? How do you know? I mean, you don't even know what you took birth to learn. I and mean, you're trying, maybe. How can we know for another person? Is that suffering necessary? Even if you could take it away, should you do it? This last weekend, I was down teaching at Mount Madonna Center near uh, Santa Cruz. And it was a weekend kind of a workshop, meditation, and working with the heart. And one of the things that came up during the time together in this group of people was that someone talked about the fact that first one and then the second of their two children, both of their children, had died in the last few years, and what it was like to work with that kind of grief and bereavement. And they were, they were extraordinary people, this couple, really extraordinary. And they talked about going to seek out other parents of multiple bereavement, and that they'd gone to a, to a kind of a center where they met many other families, and they said they never were with a group of people where there was less superficial talk and more real, honest connection as human beings. It was extraordinary. And so they said that, and then I asked how many other people in this room of a hundred or hundred fifty people, how many people had lost children? Fifteen people raised their hand. It was just amazing. And people started to tell some of their stories, young and old, what had happened. And someone came to me and talked about their child who had died, who had been told that they had um, incurable cancer at one point. And just what a beautiful being this child was and how gracefully they had died. And they said after they were, the child was told that they would probably die, she said their, her, her daughter came to her and said, Mom, is it okay? St will it still be okay to laugh? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Is it still okay to laugh anyway, even though I'm dying? We don't know. We really, I mean, we don't even know for ourselves. How could we presume to know for another being? Brother David Stendelrast, a wonderful teacher and a friend, says that one of his favorite names for God is surprise. 
He said that comes closer to what God means than most other words in the English language. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is going through all his dilemmas about whether to go into battle and so forth, and the, teaches all these different practices. And in the end, at some point, the teaching that's given from Krishna is to learn to act in the world because we must act, and we do. To act from our hearts with what, in whatever capacity we can without attachment to the fruit of the action. This is what it means when I ask the question, can our work and our love come out of emptiness? Can it come not from knowing, but from acting the best that we're able without attachment to the fruit of the action. It means that we have to have a very deep trust. And a good part of spiritual life is really about trust. To find a true equanimity in ourselves with the movements of life, of birth and death and to sense our interconnectedness in this mystery that we don't understand and won't, that the purpose is not to understand, but to find some peace and let that trust and our actions come out of that place of peace and emptiness, without compulsion, without attachment, without fear. I once saw a simple fish pond in a Japanese village which gave me a direct sense of something eternal. The farmer had made it long ago for his farm. The pond was a simple rectangle about six feet wide and eight feet long, opening off a little irrigation stream. At one end, a bush of flowers hung over the water. At the other end, under the water, was a circle of wood, its top perhaps 12 inches below the surface of the water. In the pond, there were eight great ancient carp, each fish maybe 18 inches long, orange, gold, purple, black. The oldest one had been there for 80 years. The eight fish swam slowly, slowly in circles, often within the wooden circle. The whole world was in that pond. Every day, the farmer sat by it for a few minutes. I was there only one day, and I sat by it all afternoon. And even now, I cannot think of it without tears. Those ancient fish had been swimming slowly in that pond for 80 years. It was so true to the nature of the fish, the flowers, the water, and the farmer, that it had sustained itself for all that time, endlessly repeating, always different, totally complete. There is no degree of wholeness or reality which can be reached beyond the simplicity of that pond. Can we find that kind of stillness in ourself? This is really a story about meditation, about sitting. 
To sit in some ways is to let ourselves sit by that pond and feel our breath and our thoughts and our fears and all the fish and waves that move through the water of our life. And all the things that would come and say, I'm really important or this time I really do know and I do understand. You know all those voices. And just let the fish swim by and find some deeper place of goodness and silence and wholeness. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras gives an interesting teaching. Instead of the Buddhist teaching of giving and generosity, he says the teaching is to neither give nor receive. That's very interesting, huh? To neither give nor receive. Which again asks, can our work and our love come out of emptiness, out of that pond? It means to sense an interdependence where in the end we don't give and we don't receive. It's just this dance. It's not me and I don't own this car and I'm going to give it to you or I, this is my money and I'm going to hand it to you or take that from you for me. It's everybody's. It's ours. It's not somebody's. It's either everybody's or nobody's, depending on your mood. <laughs> to neither give nor receive. To let your actions not come from getting or giving or having. But let the heart act from some other place of strength and peacefulness and stillness. A place of a fearlessness that there is death. And there is suffering, and there's pain, and there's beauty and joy, all of that. And that's what's supposed to be here. Just what's here. And just do it a day at a time, or a step at a time, or whatever. End with a poem from Kabir. I talk to my inner lover, and I say, why such a rush? We sense that there is some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants. Perhaps the same spirit that gives a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is you turned away yourself and decided to go into the dark. Now you are tangled up in others and have forgotten who you are and what you once knew. Kabir says, it's a good day. Why not remember today? It's a good day to do it. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is you turned away yourself. So to speak about compassion and dependence and codependence tonight was more to raise some questions, to, to bring you, in some ways, an offering to listen in yourself. Where do our relationships come from? And how do we act? And am I considered in this? Is there mercy for this being in this body? And is it okay that there's suffering in the world? Because if it's not, you're really in trouble. I'd like to make a few announcements, and then we'll sit for a minute and then have our groups. There are 
two upcoming day-long sittings on the land at Spirit Rock, uh, Saturday, the 30th, with James Barras and Julie Wester, for people who would like. You can call the Insight Meditation West office to sign up for that. And I'm doing a day-long at Green Gulch on the 14th of October, although I was told this evening that they heard that the barn there is unsafe, and it's not clear whether people can meet in it until they fix it, I guess. They can't? They can't fix it. And they can't fix it? Not for less than $100,000. Not for less than $100,000. It's worth it. <laughs> well, anyway, I don't know what will happen with that barn. It's a wonderful barn, and I'm going to go sit in it anyway. I don't care. <laughs> Let it fall down. But. Um, so there are those two day-longs, and if you sign up for the Green Gulch day-long and it doesn't happen in the barn, then we'll do it in the meadow or in the zendo in the city or someplace. We'll find a place. Um, in the back of the room, there's a place to sign up for a mailing list, and there's a stack of inquiring minds which have other events and, uh, and retreats and so forth that are scheduled, listed. And there's a basket for donations, uh, the tradition being for the last 2,000 and more years that Dharma teachings be given as freely as possible. So you can go to Asia and they take you into the temples and teach you and clothe you and feed you and care for you, all for nothing, because those societies so value spiritual life. We'd like to keep that tradition alive here. And so your support and valuing of it, your support allows me to teach and support for Spirit Rock will make a center for anyone who would like to come. So, let us just sit together for a minute. As if you were sitting by that pond, the farmer's village pond. And the fish naturally will swim around, that's what they're supposed to do. See if you can sense in the stillness and the emptiness a place of natural compassion that understands the seasons of life, its joys and sorrows, and doesn't try to change things so much as to bring an understanding and a love to all things that there are.
and a fearlessness. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.